vicious hip. How about that? With the second pick in the 2011 NFL Draft, the Denver Broncos select Von Miller, linebacker, Texas A&M. He's the greatest ever, huh? And then I just wanted when you got all the advantages. Welcome to the Aggie War Pod, a product of the Republic of Football Podcast Network and Dave Campbell's Texas Football. I am your co-host, Mike Craven, senior writer at DCTF. The other voice you'll hear on this podcast is a barbecue-eating machine who won't shy away from a road trip or an off-key rendition of Creed. The former fighting Texas Aggie defensive lineman arrived in College Station as a three-star prospect back in 2013. He now resides in Houston, Texas, but his heart never left. Ladies, gentlemen, Reverly, I present the one, the only, Jay Arnold. Yeah, and I'm I'm still uh still kind of reeling from this weekend. Uh obviously not the result we wanted. Uh if you're an AM fan. Uh kind of close to what I predicted though, as far as the score. Uh it wasn't far off. 27-20 was my prediction. Alabama wins 26-20. Uh but man, uh it felt like that one was kind of in the palm of AM's hand and it just uh felt like a giveaway almost. Uh a lot of talk about though. I'm not sure the best team won. We'll break that down in, in first down for for listeners who are new. We break this down into four downs, kind of like a football series. We'll talk about the Alabama loss in first down. We'll talk about some big picture topics coming out of that loss in second down and third down. We'll preview the Tennessee game this Saturday. Yes, the football season continues even after the loss uh, against Alabama. And then fourth down, we'll have some fun uh, with Ask Jay, where we kind of talk about some off topic. Uh, stuff outside the football field. Before we get started, if you're listening, uh, please subscribe, rate us five stars, tell a friend, put it on social media, all the stuff that you can do to help grow the podcast. If you'd like to be a, uh, a advertiser, uh, please hit up Jay or I you know, on Twitter or an email, whatever you want to do uh, to talk to us there. Uh, go to Home Field Apparel. Uh, if you haven't, uh, go to Home Field Apparel, get some apparel for that next Aggie home game. They have some really cool stuff for Texas A&M. If you use the promo code WHOOP, W-H-O-O-P, you get 15% off of your first order, and we get a little bit of kickback on that one. So we like we like those things. Go ahead and do that. It's a great company, and appreciate y'all's support. On this week's show, as I mentioned, we will talk about the Texas A&M 26-20 loss to Alabama, and then preview the Week 7 contest at Tennessee Jay, let's jump into this 26 nothing loss uh, to Alabama. The game was right there. A&M was winning at halftime. Uh, they had multiple chances in the second half. I think the topic of conversation we might as well just get into early is what do you att- attribute uh, that loss to? Is that on the field football where Alabama just beat Texas A&M, or, or do you lean more towards what I've seen online the last couple of days, and that's the kind of coaching staff maybe letting down this group? Look, uh, we, we've talked about how coming out of the half, AM has been a little bit sluggish and perhaps behind on adjustments. Uh, that was the case again on Saturday, and, and it cost AM the game. Uh, you know, AM comes out at the half, and uh, Alabama scores 14 in the third quarter to take the lead. Uh, they get a safety there in the fourth quarter, and it, it just seems like there weren't adjustments. Uh, it seemed like AM kept trying to force long developing pass plays or runs inside the tackle box that just weren't there. Or uh, you know, AM struggled on the offensive line to protect Max Johnson, uh, which again is why I think you get to some quicker pass plays, uh, to try to get the ball out of his hands fast if you're if you're not able to protect him. 
and it just seemed like those adjustments didn't happen. Defensively, I mean, obviously, we knew what the issue was going to be going into this game. We knew that Milrow had the uh, capability to hit the long ball, uh, and they hit the long ball repeatedly. I mean, that's pretty much the only thing that was open for Alabama was that long ball, but the adjustment to that was never made either. In the front seven, I thought the team played just as as well as they have in the past two. Uh, they gave this Aggie offense a chance to win. I mean, you look at it, and 23 yards rushing for Alabama. You hold a, <laughs> an Alabama team to a quarter of a football field in rushing, and, and you can't get the win. I mean, it's, it's frustrating. And, uh, you know, like you said, I don't know that the best team won this game. There were several opportunities A&M had, and, and a lot of times it looked like they were the better team, but just a couple matchups here and there. And, you know, Alabama, you can't have any errors against Alabama, and A&M had repeated errors, and, and the Crimson Tide came out on top. Uh, it's kind of a disappointing result, especially, uh, I, I don't know if you could feel it from the, the press box, but that crowd was electric on Saturday being in the stands. I mean, several false start penalties caused in my opinion, by the crowd, uh, just a lot of a great opportunity to kind of cement your place atop the SEC West. And, uh, they just didn't capitalize. Yeah. To your point, five first half. For false start penalties, there was a point uh, in the second half on a drive where they had three in a row that kind of pushed them back and forced them to punt. 108,101 people at Kyle Field. That was the third largest attending game ever there. I'd say we spent the last five minutes on the field from the press box, just kind of watching the, the last little bit. I, I'd say top five atmosphere I've ever been a part of. If you take away like national championship games and kind of, you know, some of those bowl games at the Rose Bowl that kind of get interesting for their own reasons, but uh, just a great crowd uh, definitely impacted the game and, and put A&M in a position to win it. I want to go through some of these coaching decisions just to get you, I mean, you know more about football than I ever will. So just to get so just some thoughts on how, what your thought process was on here. They punted three times in Alabama territory. I think the most egregious one was the fourth and one, I think it was on Alabama's 47 or 48 late in the third quarter at 17 to 17. Alabama, you know, I, I hate to look, I hate using what happens next when we're looking at at decisions because that doesn't shouldn't always play into it. And says 2020 and right. And but at 17 17, you're in Alabama territory. You punt that ball, Alabama goes and scores the game winning touchdown. So it, it makes it look really bad uh, in hindsight. Did you think the decision w- was bad in the moment? Would you have gone for it? Yeah. I mean, I, I get why, because I've I've gone back and watched film. I'm a sicko like that. I like to torment myself and and watch this game multiple times. And you know, early in the game, uh, on the first drive for A and M, you have that attempt at getting a, a fourth and one, and it fails. And I have to wonder if that wasn't in the coach's mind. Uh, plus, you look at how the defense has been. The defense has been the the key component to this team's success. Uh, so you trust your defense, and, and I get why they don't. But at the same t- time, I think, you know, in that situation where your offense is struggling anyway, I, I think you have to go for it. I think, you know, it, it's it's a opportunity to really put pressure back on Alabama uh, as opposed to putting it on your own defense. And, you know, in that scenario, personally, I would have gone for it. I, I get both sides of the argument, but I, I just think that uh, – playing a little bit more conservatively 
ended up costing AM there uh, as far as going for it on fourth down. You've been on sidelines before for big decisions, obviously. Does what the coach does in those situations, does that does that bleed into the team? Like in the moment, do you go, like, oh, man, he doesn't trust our offense. This is going to be all on us to do this thing. Or is it there's so many things going on that maybe you don't feel it in the same way that the fans do? How does the sideline react to moments like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know from an offensive standpoint, just because that's not my realm. Uh, defensively, you're always just kind of focused on, all right, let's, let's get out there and, and go execute what we need to do. But. I think there is an element of that. If you're an offensive player, just kind of being a competitive guy, you want to go out there and win the game. Uh, you want the game on your shoulders. There's there's not a guy out there on the team that's going to want to punt in that situation. Uh, and I do think that, you know, having that decision kind of taken away from you, uh, it does, you know, it, it does create a little bit of frustration. Uh, again, like defensively, you want to go out there and do your job. So you're not super worried about it, but I just circle back to the aggressive mentality that I think you had to have going into this game that I just kind of felt like was absent in the second half. And then the next big play or, or the next big decision for Fisher that people are second guessing was, you know, it gets down to fourth and two on the goal line there about two or three yards you know, away from the end zone. Uh, you're down by seven. Uh, or I think maybe nine. I, I can't. I I think it's nine at that point. Nine at that right? point because yeah. of the because of the safety. Um, do you go for a field goal like like say or like Fisher did, or do do you go to the end zone because you're that close to it? I I just I don't mind the field goal in that scenario because you're going to have to get those points anyway. Uh, I don't think like there's certain scenarios where if you're down fourteen and you kick a field goal, it's waving the white flag. In this right. case scenario where you're needing nine points a field goal helps you right like it, it makes it where you, you win the game with a touchdown or an extra point if you can get the ball back and again defensively you would think that this team was going to be able to get the ball back so I, I don't really blame the decision making there uh especially with Alabama probably going into a little bit more uh conservative play calling like and let's be honest here AM very close to getting the ball back after after that field goal uh but Again, it's I get why people are frustrated. That one in particular doesn't bother me that much. That one doesn't bother me as much if you don't call a timeout before the field goal. Yeah, and that's and that's where the issue comes in is it's the clock management. Uh obviously not as bad as some examples that we saw on Saturday. <laughs> uh yeah. Shout uh, out to uh, Miami for saving yeah. Jimbo Fisher from being the 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 clown show of the weekend, really. Yeah. Uh, thanks to a, a previous opponent, right? Uh but no, I mean, the clock management has always been an issue here, and I get that you want to have time to make a decision, uh, but I think you have to have that field goal team ready to go. And maybe part of the second guess is that you have a field goal blocked already, and and that's why they kind of wanted to discuss it a little bit more. But I, I just don't think you can afford to, to use a timeout in that scenario. Because even if it takes you 20 seconds to get your field goal kicker on the field and kick it, that's still 15 seconds less than what the other team can run it off when you don't have um, the, the timeout. I'm I'm with you. I didn't think the field goal was that egregious of a decision. You need a field goal and you need a touchdown. It's fourth down there. If you don't make the field goal, the game's over regardless, right? So you need some points there to keep the, the play going, to keep the string going. My only thing is, at least on paper, 
you're on the two yard line. You're not going to get closer to the end zone when you get the ball back finally, right? Like I would rather have a Hail Mary 55 yard field goal to win this football game than a Hail Mary 55 yard, throw it up in the air and see somebody try to catch it in the end zone type deal at the end. So to me, once you complete that pass on third down, you get into you get into uh, fourth and goal there on the two or three yard line. And then especially once you take the timeout, that's as good of a chance as you're going to get to score a touchdown in, the, in that scenario. So I know it basically ends the game if you don't get it. And so you kick the field goal to extend it. But in my mind, that's just extending the inevitable because you're, you're putting yourself in a position to where you're going to have to hell Mary, which leads me to my next question about the game management stuff. The onside kick. Do you you need to stop them no matter what? Right. Like if they get a first down, the game is over. So why put the ball on the 50 yard line rather than kick it deep and try to have it on the 25 to where you only now you got to go because, you know, you're going to need the touchdown. Right. And so you put them you put them on the 40 yard line after the onside kick and and they can just pin you deep. And now you got to go 90 something yards in in a minute and a half, even if, you know, everything works out the way that does Alabama. Jalen Miller played made a really good play there on third down to to ice the game. Uh, But once you've called the timeout, now you only have two timeouts. It just feels like you got to kick it deep. I, I his his explanation afterwards was, well, if we had three timeouts, we would have kicked it deep because we knew for a fact we could have got the ball back if we stopped them. But you knew you were going to get the ball back if you stopped them on three downs anyway. You just weren't going to have as much time, which makes that yards even more important in my mind. I just I guess I just didn't get I get I didn't get that whole scenario. I didn't get the call in the timeout and then kicking the field goal and then onside kick. It just felt like it was all just made up in the moment. Uh, and looking back on it, I know it's easy. Like we just mentioned, hindsight's twenty twenty. Everything's happened down there really fast. But you're getting paid $10 million a, a, a year for this type of stuff. These are the decisions that you make all that money to to do. Uh, it just felt it felt very conservative and felt scared. It felt like a, a coach playing not to win or not to lose. Uh, and you can't do that against Nick Saban. Like they, they are going to come up with every single opportunity and cash that stuff in. You have to take advantage of it. And it felt like from the very beginning, Jimbo Fisher and the Aggies came in there being way too conservative to win that football game. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's circling back to the, like kick the decision to kick the field goal uh, off timeout. Like I get why they would want to kick that field goal too, because you haven't had success in the short yard situations. So maybe in like in your head, you're thinking, all right, we're the field shrunk. Maybe we feel a little bit more comfortable with a little bit of distance, but in that case scenario, you still kick it deep. Like you, you still, you don't kick the onside kick and then, and then make your defense come up with a stop. I mean, the flip side of it too is, I mean, if you believe in your defense and you say that you believe in your defense, why, why even kick the onside kick? Like if you think you're going to get the ball back, I, I just, man, it's, there's a lot to be frustrated with. And I know part of that too is, is, you know, being a fan and and having all the hindsight that we've talked about and sure. you know in the moment you don't know exactly what's going to happen uh because if AM recovers that onside kick i mean it's you have two timeouts to go 50 yards and it, it's a dream scenario really uh but i just with how your defense is played knowing that alabama is probably going to be running the ball and, and looking at what alabama has been able to do running the ball i, I just don't understand not kicking that ball deep. It just felt like at the end, AM was counting on low percentage plays having to happen. Yeah. Needing to get a touchdown after you make the field goal, 
needing the needing to get an onside kick back. If you don't get that back, now you got to go 85 yards instead of 55 yards or 60 yards for a, for a touchdown at the end. Um, yeah, it was just it was a poorly managed game. I don't think that there's any way around that. It felt like a poorly managed game, especially in hindsight, against a team and a coach that you cannot lose the sidelines to that much, right? Like A&M's not that much better than Alabama to where they can get clowned on the side. Like Nick yeah. said, like you have to, you have to coach to almost a draw, which is, I know hard because you're talking about the greatest of all time on the other sideline, but it felt like if you flipped the coaching staffs, if you put Alabama and Nick Saban on A&M's team, or if you just flipped rosters, like give A&M or give out, give Alabama Nick Saban everything that A&M has and vice versa. Right. And when the Nick Saban coach team wins that by 10, if they have Jimbo Fisher's roster and vice versa, right? Like yeah. it feels like we can usually look at offense. You can usually, usually look at defense or you can usually look at special teams and isolate a few things that cost a team the game. It felt like this one, the biggest coster of the football game happened on the coach on the sidelines happened with the coaching staff. Yeah. And look, the other thing that kind of upsets me is a, you know, former player here is you see a lot of talk about like officials and officiating and in, in deciding games. If if you make the correct calls and you know you make adjustments at halftime, you you see that a that Bama is going to try to hit the deep ball. You make those adjustments. The officials don't come into it, and I understand like getting a little frustrated on that one Evan Stewart ball, uh, where the umpire is you know kind of an obstacle. Honestly, he could still make that catch. But you you can't pin it down on officials when you have so many opportunities to win the game on your own merit. Uh, and I think that's a problem with fan bases in general, is blaming things on the officials uh, when, when that's not really the case. And like you said, I mean, another thing that was super kind of frustrating about this, normally Jimbo calls his best games against Alabama. Like we've seen lesser talented A&M squads be competitive against the Tide. Uh just because it seems like uh, Jimbo usually brings out the best. And, you know, if he calls one of his better games, AM wins, in my opinion. But that just isn't what happened on Saturday. Uh, and there's, you know, some other scenarios, obviously, uh, where, you, where you're not capitalizing. You know, if that field goal doesn't get blocked, it's 23 26. You have to wonder, well, then AM probably goes for the touchdown there at the end of the game instead of, I mean, there's just a lot of, variables here uh even kicking that field goal that got blocked was a silly decision in my opinion yeah yeah you know just like it felt like so in 2021 when AM upset bam at home they had nothing to lose they were coming off of two losses they could just throw everything against the wind and try to have the upset it's us against the world nobody believes in us all that kind of stuff last year it felt like AM had not much to lose the the season was already kind of going in uh towards the tank a little bit Let's try to right all these wrongs, get a win at Alabama. Maybe that re-jump starts uh, the season, and they go in there with nothing to lose. There was a lot to lose on Saturday. Texas A&M, with that win, is in control of the SEC West. It looks like a down year. Everything's in front of Texas A&M if they go win that football game, and it felt like Jimbo Fisher coached it knowing how much was riding on that football game. He did not play as reckless and as wild and, and as free as maybe he had coached the previous two. It felt like the pressure of the moment and the situation and knowing that Nick Saban was across from him kind of got to him a little bit in a way that it hasn't in the last couple of years because he hasn't had to face facing Nick Saban with the expectations at the same time. 
Yeah, and I mean, there was a lot of national people or national media picking A&M to win this game. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I felt like kind of that odd man out uh, not picking A&M. And, you know, I'm honestly in hindsight, I'm just, it's it's frustrating because like the game played out how I expected with like right. a few twists Me too. and turns. Me too. But it, it's just all the more disappointing. Uh, I mean... We've kind of talked about it ad nauseum, but it's just so many, so many decisions that I felt like was decisions were made that felt ultra conservative. And I mean, it, it's just you have a chance. I, I you play with the same aggression that you normally play with, and you have a real shot to uh, cement yourself atop the SEC West. Uh, but just so many opportunities that weren't capitalized on. I mean, you have the interception. Uh, that ends with AM throwing another reception, giving the ball right back. I mean, you capitalize on that and you're going in. And uh, there was a few balls that were underthrown. Uh, Anaya Smith had a real good shot at a uh, a long touchdown, but the ball's underthrown. He could still make that catch. I mean, and I don't I don't want to single out any of the guys either, right? Like it, it's there's thousands of factors that go into it, uh, and at the end of the day, it just comes down to not executing. And when you don't execute against the Alabama team, you lose games. So we'll see how AM bounces back. Uh, obviously, things don't get easier. You're going on the road to one of the most hostile environments in the country uh, to take on a ranked Tennessee squad. So uh, you got to have the the goldfish mentality, right? Uh, short memory. We'll see. Uh, we'll see if AM responds. Yeah, I mean, on the football field, I thought the biggest play of the game was the Johnson interception two plays after the Bryson Anderson interception, the one you alluded to. Uh, A&M's up 17-10. to 10. Alabama gets the ball to start the second half. They throw an interception. That Kyle Field is going nuts at that moment, right? Like, you're up by seven points. You just got the ball back. Even if you go just make a field goal and make it a 10-point game, it, it felt the way that Alabama is built. All of a sudden, A&M can pin their ears back, go after the passer, and they're not going to be able to figure that out. Instead, two plays later, Max Johnson throws an interception. Caleb Downs, that true freshman safety for Alabama, is unreal, by the way. That kid is freakishly good. Comes up with a really big play, makes that interception. Uh, a couple plays later, Alabama. Which was a hell game. of a play, to be fair. It was. Like, it was like, an I absolutely mean, hell. You, you that can't be a, super mad at that. The, that guy's a future first-round draft pick, All-American player. Like That is one of the best true freshmen to come through Alabama in a while. And also, this Alabama defense is legit. As much as we want to talk about that offense maybe not being what it's been with like Lane Kiffin as the OC and Sark as the OC, uh, that that defense is really, really good, one of the better ones in the last couple of years. And Texas A&M only scored three points in, in, in the second half total. But I thought that drive was crucial. I know it was early in the third quarter, a lot of football left to play, all those decisions that we talked about. AM still could have won this game even with that interception. But it feels like if they capitalize on that one and go and score, even a field goal to make it a two-possession game, all of a sudden, all the momentum, all the belief, everything is on AM's side. Instead, they just let it slip through their hands. So it's not just decisions, right? It's not just the coaching staff. The players, the players miss some opportunities as well, as you pointed out. Yeah, and I mean, if you go down and score and capitalize on that, not only does it give you a chance of defense to pin their airs and get back, but Kyle Field, I mean, there's kind of a collective sigh whenever that interception was thrown. Uh, if you go down and score, all of a sudden you're up by 10, that crowd is going to be even more intense than, than what we saw, which, I mean, again, I still think the crowd played a big factor, but 
if if you go and make that play and 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 capitalize and like you said even just a field goal even just a field goal at that stage uh it feels like you're really in control and can can get after Alabama uh on the defensive front which again I do want to give the defensive front their flowers cuz that was great. a hell of a performance I mean Edron Cooper is yeah. what a year he's having uh you know Fadil Diggs with a great performance Walter Nolan obviously was a factor uh, it's just, man, it, it, it's always more frustrating when there's a chance to win and you let it slip away. I think that's the the most painful part. Losing Alabama happens. People lose to Alabama all the time. You know, like that, that's what Alabama does is they beat teams when they're not supposed to. Uh, but, but lose like with the amount that was riding on it and with the way Alabama played and the way, frankly, A&M played, A&M played really well that first half and, and put themselves in a chance uh, to go win that football game, to let it slip through your fingers feels like a, a, a big one. Uh, the secondary continued to struggle. The offensive line continued to struggle. You know, obviously the Jimbo Fisher decisions. And so kind of back to the drawing board after that one, a tough loss. I think we both agree that AM was as good, if not better, on Saturday uh, than Alabama. It's just small margins, coaching, yep. execution, little things like that is what separates, you know, on these big games. And so, um, you know, doesn't get any easier, as you mentioned. So AM's got to figure out a way to dust us fans and media people. Like we can kind of dwell on this stuff, but but the Aggies have to get back to it because as you mentioned, uh not getting any easier going on the road to play in a Tennessee team that's pretty good offensively as well. Um, so f- we'll talk about that one a little bit more uh in third down. Let's get to second down here where we talk a little bit more kind of big picture stuff coming out of that loss to Alabama. I want to talk about the offensive line first. What are your kind of overall takes? Is it is this coaching? Is it scheme? Like, how is Bryce Foster? Because you got to explain this to me as a layman. Bryce Foster, guys like Ruben Fathery, like how do those guys not get any better in year yeah. three than they were in year one? Well, and like Ruben Fathery hasn't even been playing, right? Uh, but no, I just I think part of it's injury. Uh, I think that does play a big role, but also just seems like the scheme doesn't necessarily line up with what AM does best. Uh, and then in the passing attack, it just, for one thing, I do want to give Alabama a lot of credit there. Uh, Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell are both very, very talented pass rushers. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, across the whole offensive line there in the second half, Alabama's pretty much collapsing uh, the offensive line. And that's part of why Max Johnson's unable to get rid of the ball. Uh, I, I don't know how they aren't better uh, at this stage. Uh, I do think they tend to perform better in the run game when they get into more of a, a man blocking set or a man blocking scheme as opposed to a zone blocking scheme. I think that hurts a little bit. Uh, even then, though, like Tim Smith on the interior for for Alabama is another fantastic player. Uh, you know the front seven is going to be a battle, but it's just pressure. I mean, AM has to be better at pass blocking, and I don't know if that's just a, a change in, in – scheme and and maybe Henson's approach to pass blocking was better than than what Adazio has shown so far. Uh but AM just doesn't seem to have improved there. Uh you know, maybe it is the players. Maybe they had already peaked uh when they started early. Uh regardless how you slice it, I mean it's just you have to be better than that. Uh again, we circle back to three straight years with the starting quarterback being lost to injury. Uh, and I think that falls on the offensive line. 
Yeah, just the development doesn't seem to be there. Week to week adjustments don't seem to be there. Like there's just no way to hide some of these these issues. Whenever you get into a situation where you have to play a true freshman on the edge against, you know, teams that are this good, you're going to have some problems, right? So I'm not going to I'm not going to blame the true freshman for not being ready for these big games. I'm going to I'm going to blame the coaching staff for not recruiting guys and developing in a way that where a true freshman has to start for you at tackle uh, in big games like this. And so at A&M, with the way that they recruit and the way that the offensive line talent is in this state, I, I say this about the Longhorns all the time. They're starting to figure this out a little bit, but it's been true for a decade plus. You can't be this bad on the offensive line. Like, there's no excuse for it. Like, you should be able to find big guys, develop big guys, and at least put out an adequate to an above average offensive line, essentially year in and year out if you're at AM or if you're at Texas. Well, and especially with the history that AM has on the offensive line. I mean, you go back to when I was there. Uh, guys like you know Luke Jokel had just left, Jake Matthews, uh, Cedric Abwehi, uh, Jermaine Effetti, uh, and then Eric McCoy coming in later. Like, there's a rich history of offensive line and and A and M producing at that position in particular, uh, especially recently. But then all of a sudden, the past two years, the past three years, it just feels like there's been a fall off. Uh, and I don't know if that's, you know, a, a, an indictment on Jimbo Fisher or the offensive line coaches that have been there. Uh, but it, it's just, you know, you, you need to win in the trenches to win games. And AM's not doing that on the offensive side of the ball. You know, Layden Robinson entered 2022 as kind of like a dark horse, going to be an NFL draft kind of guy. He feels like he's flattened out. His PFF grades haven't been very well. I've been surprised that that Cam Dewberry hasn't played more. Uh, just because of his stock as a recruiting guy and like how how good he was coming out of high school. Um, and so, yeah, it just feels like uh, they've lost a couple guys for the transfer portal, obviously, uh, that have hurt depth there. Uh, it just feels like a position that shouldn't be as bad as it is. I think we can safely say that it should be better. And it's it's the thing holding back the offense. Like, as you mentioned, the quarterback injuries can at least somewhat be attributed to that offensive line. And when you have a backup in there and you're not able to have any type of balance, like I didn't expect – AM to go into Alabama and rush for 200 yards. Like, I don't think anybody expected that. Uh, but you got to be able to run the ball sometimes and you got to be able to protect. Uh, and they weren't able to do either of those things really on a consistent basis. And that, I mean, what are you going to do if you're Max Johnson at that point, right? I mean, you're just playing for your life. And he's not, he's not an NFL first or second round pick guy anyway that's going to like make up for that stuff. And so it, it just felt like as the game went on, Alabama figured out more and more like, Hey, they can't block us. Like they, they can't block us at all. And so uh, once Alabama decided that knew that it, it felt like AM had no chance in the second half, it, it felt like AM was lucky to move the ball, much less try to score. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a big part of that is, you know, you have, you do still have a lot of talent there on the edges. And I Smith in particular, I thought had a pretty, pretty solid game. Uh, you know, big punt return that helped out AM a lot. And, you know, he, he, he just made plays, uh, really wish he would have got that touchdown. Obviously that's, I'm not blaming him. That's a hell of a play, uh, regardless, but, uh, now again, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with if A&M capitalizes on the interception, uh, and they get to pin their ears back. It, it felt like Alabama did that. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden Alabama can pin their ears back and really get after the quarterback as opposed to, you know, kind of having to play smart. Uh, and it, it just kind of made the game easier for Alabama. So, yeah, it's, I mean, again, this is where I think you have to get a little bit of a, of a better short passing game. Uh, slants, crossing routes, you know, like very quick 
catch and release things so that Max Johnson isn't getting hit in the face on nearly every play. Yeah, I mean, Evan Stewart's clearly not 100%. Obviously, you know, missing Noah Thomas and that ability to, to get downfield. And so, um, yeah, it was, just, it was a tough game for the A&M Alphans. But I don't think any of us thought – I mean, my prediction was 28-24 A&M. So we thought it was going to be this kind of scoring game. It wasn't going to be A&M getting into the 30s or even into the 40s. It was going to be played in the teens and in the 20s. Uh, the defense, at least in the front seven, played well enough to keep uh, A&M in that game. And the offense – in the first half, moved the football, scored enough points, just the three points in the second half. You just, you're just you not going to win many football games against teams as good as Alabama if you're only scoring three points in the second half because the defense can only hold up for so long. Like the defense is going to give up some points. Like That's still a talented uh, offense on the other side. I wrote down when I was in the press box kind of my three keys to the game afterwards, and it was coaching decisions, offensive line play, and then secondary. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the secondary. Uh, Jermaine Burton had nearly 200 yards. He scored both of the the touchdowns in the third quarter to put Alabama up on top. Jalen Milrow, who's not you know an incredible passer, uh, ended with with over 300 yards passing. Uh, had three touchdowns. Looked really good. Looked really comfortable, especially in the deep game. Jay, kind of what's your just overall view on on this Aggie secondary? Is it schematic? Is, is it players? Kind of where do you see the issues? Well. So, Both. yeah, I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, it, it seemed like from the jump, Alabama strategy was to pick on Josh Berry, and that was what they did successfully throughout the game. Uh, but, I mean, even when Tyreek Chappelle or, or Deuce Harmon was on in coverage, there were still some struggles there as well. Uh, and then you also have just, like, straight-up blown coverages, like the Isaiah Bond touchdown where he is completely behind the secondary with no one close to him. Uh, you just can't have that. And it, it's it seems like they're covering the underneath routes better than they were against Miami. And, and you know, maybe that's part of the issue, right, is, is you're, you focus more on that and, and rallying to those and, as opposed to covering deep. But you know going into this one, I mean, we talked about it ad nauseum, that Milrow struggles in the intermediate game and the key to stopping him as a passer is going to be the long ball because he does have the arm strength to throw that long ball and has hit those types of plays in the past. Uh, so I, I just, I don't understand how you're not more prepared for that. Uh, I, I don't like, I have to attribute some of that to coaching because everyone knows what the strategy is going to be. Uh, and you know, it's the same thing. Like, AM did have to get aggressive up front. Like you have to bring pressure. So you're gonna give up some big plays. But by the same time, by the same token, it, it's when you know exactly what the other team is going to do and you can't stop it, it it's gotta be a mixture of, of both coaching and personnel out there. Uh and you know, I, I do think AM's gonna improve in the secondary, but it just seems a shame to waste the defensive line and, and linebacking core that is performing so, so well right now. My heart goes out to those defensive linemen and linebackers. <clears throat> I don't know how y'all don't kill each other, right? Like, I don't know how on a team when it's that lopsided, you know, we see it a lot of times with like one unit versus the other unit. Like the offense is really great and the defense can't stop anybody or the defense is really great. And the offense is awful. Like in Iowa, I don't know how a linebacker at Iowa didn't just choke slam the quarterback or a wide receiver, or even the offensive coordinator. I don't know how Walter Nolan doesn't walk back to the secondary and go like, what the, you know, like how, how do you, how do you kind of handle um, those discrepancies within a, not only team unit to unit, but like within a unit, like it feels like the front seven of Texas A&M played an A plus game. 
Like, I mean, you couldn't have asked for much better to hold Alabama to those kind of running rushing uh, totals to get pressure on the quarterback for Edger and Cooper to be so good for Tory and York to not be a topic of conversation because he's that good. We don't even have to discuss that. They have a true freshman playing linebacker uh, in a game that, that may decide the sec West title because he's just been that good. The front seven has been excellent. And then the back four or five, uh, has just not has just not been good despite the transfers that they brought in despite historically being pretty good in the secondary yeah. the last couple of years I mean they led the nation in pass defense last year um, how does it get so bad so quick yeah I do think there's one exception in the secondary and that's Bryce Anderson but yeah he's been good yeah I I just I don't I don't understand either uh, as for like the guys up front not killing each other I mean I do have to like remind myself this is not an easy game uh, especially at this level uh and it's tough to execute uh does that make it any less frustrating no uh but yeah i just with the pieces that they had back i mean obviously you have Damani richardson who has you know been a part of this AM secondary for it seems like forever uh it just feels like they should be so much better than they are and i understand that the corner position was always going to be the question mark this season right it, it's there was never really a doubt about that but it just seems like you should have a little more in the back end that can push you over the top. Because if if even if the secondary plays like a B minus of a game against Alabama, I think the front seven carries it to a win. But with receivers constantly getting behind you and you know just giving up long balls throughout the game, you just can't win a game that way. Uh, at least not if your offense isn't also able to 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 get those types of plays and AM just you know there's more explosive explosivity than they had last year but it's still not where it needs to be to to win that type of game we did we mentioned though the defensive line has been tremendous uh 20 sacks and three sec games they had 19 sacks total in 12 games last year so uh been incredible up front edrin cooper is the best defensive player in the state of texas like full stop He's just, he's been, he's been unbelievable. He leads the state in sacks and he plays linebacker. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's just been unbelievable. Uh, Torian York, as we mentioned, but yeah, I mean, you just, you can't get bullied in the secondary that much by a team. That's not, you know, an incredible passing team. This wasn't old miss. Yeah. It wasn't even like Tennessee last year or whatever. Like Alabama's only passing threat really is chunk it as far down the field as you can. You know, like he's not that great of an intermediate passer. He's not going to be like 20 of 24 on you and just precision, right? Like Alabama's way to win was the vertical passing game if they couldn't run the football. And if a dummy like me knows that, then DJ Jerkin knows that. Uh, there just wasn't a, a, a thing that they could do to hide DeBerry and to hide some of the weaknesses uh, in that secondary. And that feels like one of those problems. Like you could probably, like if you had a really smart offensive line coach or, or we were talking to like a former offensive lineman here, I bet there's ways that you could help the offensive line. I don't know if there's ways to help the secondary at this point. It just feels like with those guys and what you have, unless the defensive line doesn't get home, unless Edger and Cooper doesn't get home, you're you're stuck with those secondary players and, and a smart OC is going to find the mismatch and exploit it over and over and over again, just like Alabama did with Jermaine Burton. Yeah, and, and if AM doesn't have the front seven that they have, it's just gonna be even worse. Right. Uh like yeah. AM's front seven kept them in this game for sure. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Because Alabama look, I mean, we've already talked about it. They limited uh the rushing attack of Alabama. Jalen Milrow, dual threat quarterback, obviously a pretty, pretty talented runner, negative thirty one yards. Yeah. 
rushing. I mean, that's just insane. Uh, but oh man, and even even sack adjusted, Alabama only averaged three point three yards a carry. So yeah. I mean, even if you take away the sack, like they could not do anything on the ground, nothing. So it's, I mean, it's a great performance, and you know, it's just. Uh, Again, I'm I'm gonna sound like a broken record here, but it's a shame that the front seven isn't getting a little more help from the back end. Road games against Tennessee, Ole Miss, and LSU left. Um, home schedules looking pretty good. South Carolina, Mississippi State, ACU. You know, I guess before we get into third down, you know, we were kind of eight and four, nine and three. This football team going into the season, do you feel like eight and four is still a possibility? Absolutely. Uh, when I look at the schedule, I mean, listen. Some of these matchups are going to be very bad for AM, but I think that, you know, a couple of bounces go their way and they can still win just about every game they have left on the schedule. Uh, you know, obviously Tennessee on the road is going to be tough, uh, but I think it's a winnable contest. Uh, LSU and Ole Miss, both with the passing attack that they've shown this year, uh, are pretty bad matchups for AM. But again, I still feel like it's it's winnable from a standpoint of a is going to be the more physical game, uh, team in both of those games. Uh, and then you look at like a Mississippi State who just by nature of the offense they run is probably going to be a threat to AM. Uh, but they're not as good as they've been in the past. Uh, South Carolina, I just I haven't been impressed with South Carolina at all this year. And, you know, hopefully we don't need to talk about Abilene Christian that much. <laughs> I don't think we need to talk about Abilene Christian that much. I've seen them play once this year. Not 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 going to do it. Um, but yeah, the three road games, you wish those were at home. Cause those are the three opponent, the three toughest opponents left yep. on the schedule are all on the road. Uh, that would be what concerns me. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this team could still be eight and four, nine and three as well. I mean, they're, they're so good at the front seven defensively. I think they have so many weapons offensively. I think Max Johnson's a fine quarterback. Um, and so if he can have time uh, to throw it in this offensive line, which has been decent, you know, at run blocking, if they, yeah. you know, Alabama's a tough team to run the football against. But against and the other teams, I, I, I think, think they can be more I don't more think balanced. you get a, a better front seven than Alabama left on the schedule. Right. Like, I think that's no the most difficult matchup, especially from a pass rushing standpoint with Dallas Turner and Chris Breswell. Yeah. The secondary is what concerns me moving forward, uh, yes. more so than anything else. Uh, let's go to third down. Uh, A&M back on the road on Saturday for a week seven matchup against Tennessee, a 4-1 and one Tennessee team. Uh, the Vols are a 3.5 favorite for those who don't follow gambling all that much. You tend to get three points for being at home. So I think Vegas sees this as mostly a toss-up football game. 2.30 p.m. on CBS. Tennessee enters ranked 19th in the nation. Only loss coming to Florida. They are 4-1. They had a bye last week. Vol's been pretty good offensive line-wise, allowing sacks. Only 1.2 a game. That's 27th in the nation. I think everybody always assumes that Tennessee with Josh Heupel is a big passing offense. Uh, but they run the football, and they run the football really well. They've actually been a lot better on the ground than they have been passing, only averaging 235 yards passing. That's 70th in the nation. Uh, for perspective, AM's 34th. Uh, so not a tremendous passing uh, team so far this year, but they are 7th in the nation in rushing. They're averaging 231 yards a game. In that one loss to Florida, what the Gators were able to do, and this is what gives me hope that, that uh, Texas A&M kind of get back on the horse get them a win and kind of rewrite the ship here uh, going forward. Florida physically dominated 
Tennessee's offensive line up front, stopped the the running game, forced Tennessee into being kind of more of a, a passing team, and they weren't able to do it. The Vols didn't even score 20 points in that loss to Florida. That feels like that has to be A&M's recipe for success here. Stop the running game, make Milton uncomfortable, and just hope that he misses some of those downfield passes that he's capable of making, but he's an inconsistent quarterback, a lot like Jalen Milrow. A better passer, a stronger arm maybe, uh, but is capable of missing those uh, passes and is not very good in the intermediate spot either. He's a vertical passing threat as well. Yeah, and look, I I think A&M does have the ability to replicate what Florida did. Uh, I think they're probably better up front. and I think they're better offensively as well. Like I would rather have Max Johnson than Graham Mertz uh, at the quarterback position. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that being said, Florida got Tennessee at home. Obviously, the swamp is a very positive environment. Uh, Neyland's going to be a little bit of a different animal uh, with Tennessee being the home team. Uh, I do think A&M matches up decently with Tennessee, especially because I think Tennessee would rather run the ball. Uh, I don't see Tennessee... Uh, keeping the same stats that they've had as far as, you know, 200 plus yards rushing and and only allowing, you know, like a sack and a half a game. Adam is absolutely going to get after Milton. I, I don't know that, that he's seen pressure quite like what A&M can bring. Uh, and it just comes down to, you know, it, are they going to make the plays? Uh, you know, if, if Milton kind of wilts under the pressure, A&M's going to be in great shape. Uh, if he's able to deliver some of those long strikes, even in the face of good pressure from the Aggie front seven, uh, A&M is going to be in for a long day. With that being said, I do think defensively, obviously, like you don't have the pass rushers like Anderson and, and or uh, like Braswell and Turner, like we talked about. Uh, so maybe A&M is a little bit better off there. Maybe they can establish the run a little bit more, uh, turn this into a little bit of a slower game uh, than, than what they did against Alabama. Uh, but is that the key offensively to just to try to figure out a way to be balanced? I think so. I think that you have to have just kind of a more that, that way a team can't, you know, pin their ears back like Alabama was able to do. Uh, I think a big part of the reason that AM had success in the first half really against Alabama is because uh, they were more balanced. They had a little bit of both. And obviously the run game wasn't great in the first half, but it was enough, right? Like enough to to kind of establish something where, you keep the the opposing defense uh, honest. Uh, this Indian team is just not – it's not built to come from behind. Uh, so if you jump out to an early lead against Tennessee, I, I think you can have a more balanced approach. You know, And you can't get too conservative, I think, too, is the, is the other point to that. But you want to get out to an early lead because if you let Nealon get into this game, it's going to be a very hostile environment and, and you're going to struggle with uh, what the Volunteers can do. Tennessee coming off an open week just as a former player. How much of an advantage is that? I mean, sometimes you get some guys healthier, uh, and that can be a help uh, coming out of a bye week. But I I never felt like the bye week was too much of an advantage. Uh, I think another thing that I'm looking at, too, is, you know, obviously Tennessee has Alabama next after A&M. You can't help but wonder if if Tennessee looks forward a little bit to that, especially knowing that Alabama is going to want revenge from last year. Uh, so I have a feeling that Alabama is going to bring their best uh, when they when they take on Tennessee. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't feel like the bye week is is particularly an advantage, uh, or maybe that's just me having seen A and M not play well come out of the bye week uh, for for several years. But I've never felt that it was it was 
a very clear and present advantage. If you're hypo, do you go, hey, we've been a good running team, but this isn't going to be the week that we're going to run the football a lot. Their secondary stinks. Let's throw it 40 times a game. Or uh, with Milton and just the way that this team is set up, do you have to continue to kind of play call the way that your team is based and then just hope that you pop some passing plays or hope the running game kind of, how do you, how do you approach playing against such a dominant front seven? Do you just concede that the running game is not going to work and then go attack the weak spot? Or do you at least early on continue to to do that just to create a balance offensively? I, I think you have to stick with what you do well. Uh, and because if Tennessee is able to get anything going in the run game, then it opens up to passing plays even That's more. True. So, uh, but you can't you can't change everything that you do based off of your opponent. Uh, obviously, you know Tennessee is probably going to have success with the long ball at certain points during this game. Uh, but but you don't get that success without setting it up with a run. Uh, I mean, I say that Alabama just did, but I think it's a little <laughs> bit of a different scenario. Uh, and I would expect that Tennessee looks to try to run the ball early. It's definitely possible that they get behind and, you know, just start going for the deep ball constantly. But uh, I would expect more of a balanced approach to start at least. Maybe this is me playing too many video games, but I if I if my script was twenty plays deep, uh, fifteen of them would be pass plays. I I would see what that secondary is early, and if I can block those pass rushers early, and then adjust off of that. And, you know, as Tennessee, like, as you said, they're only allowing like 1.2 sacks per game is what you said, I think. Yep. Uh, so why not? Like, if you think you can, you know, keep keep Milton uh, from, from ending up on the ground, you might as well just go for it, uh, especially knowing how weak the secondary is. But uh, we'll, we'll see on Saturday. Uh, at, at the very least, I'm looking forward to making the trip up there to Knoxville and, and getting to see that stadium in person. Yeah, if I'm hypo, I'm going kind of short passing game to be the run game early to keep the defensive line balanced, take, take a few vertical shots to see if, if A&M made any adjustments back that way. Make the defense play east and west and then go north and south on them is how I, you know, I think I've talked enough on this podcast. I'm a reverse pitcher. I'm from the Greg Maddox school of, of, of pitching where, you know, you kind of set, you use the off-speed stuff to set up the fastball rather than the fastball to set up the off-speed stuff. And also, I just am a big believer in just like testing the weak spots of a defense early, just to see what adjustments they've made, see if there's any confidence there, see if you can kind of poke some holes uh, and get some leaks going. If you're A&M, it feel, I get, this is true every single week, but it feels like the first quarter is super important. If, all, if Tennessee comes out and they move the ball, they have a couple of big – I think it's just very easy to go like, oh, here we go again. We can't stop the pass and play. This is going to be a long game. Uh, it just it seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. After a big loss like that, you need something good to happen early in that next game, or that lack of confidence can continue, especially on the road. Yeah. Uh, and and college football in general, I think, is such a momentum game. Uh, when when things start snowballing, it, it can have a huge impact on your mental state and lead to just more unforced errors and, and blown coverages and. Uh, you know, pressures allowed, things of that nature. They all send, tend to like compound as things start going wrong. Uh, so I do think I agree with you. Like AM needs to get out early, uh, get a a quick score, I think, offensively. And then if if they get some stops on Tennessee from a defensive standpoint and and kind of get the crowd out of it a little bit, all of a sudden 
A&M is in, in pretty good shape in this one. You use the word momentum. The Dave Campbell's Texas football managing editor, Greg Tepper, believes that momentum is fake. He doesn't believe in momentum. Uh, and I always enjoy every single time a high school coach and former college football player talks about momentum because it just <laughs> illustrates how dumb that opinion is. I mean, I get it. Uh, you know, it, it's hard it's to dumb. it's hard to quantify momentum. So why would we believe in it? But uh, I do think that there is uh, some forces in the world that we just can't explain, and momentum <laughs> happens to be one of them. Anybody who's ever played golf knows what momentum is. You hit a couple shots in a row, and you you hit a couple more shots good in a row, right? It doesn't mean you're going to hit the next seventy good in a row. Eventually, there's a, there's a shelf life there. Uh, but there is something to be said about seeing some good things happen. And then all of a sudden more good things happen. Basketball players talk about it all the time when the rim gets bigger. Uh, it just feels like, especially with the secondary, especially with the defense, like you said, a few stops early, keep them from getting vertical on you, you know, get some sacks. And then all of a sudden you're feeling better about yourself and you, you can play a little bit looser. It does feel like early on in that game though, it's going to be like, Oh, okay, let's, let's, Let's bunker down here and not let them get deep on us, and we'll see how Tennessee goes about uh, figuring that out. Do you have any uh, predictions for this game? Any thoughts about how this one's going to go or kind of where you sit here? As an Oracle who basically nailed the Alabama A&M score from week six, I'm very interested <laughs> to know how you think this one's going to head. Yeah. Uh, so I think early in the season we talked about like the big four games, uh, A&M-Bama, AM Tennessee, AM Ole Miss, AM LSU. Uh, and I, I was kind of split on what, what it would happen uh, and, and kind of wasn't sure how I, I leaned. I was leaning AM winning at Tennessee. Uh, I still think that way. I still think that this is a matchup where AM can do well. Uh, though the, the, the things have changed a little bit, right? Going into the season, I think we thought the secondary is going to be the strength and we we're going to see if AM's run defense would step up. Obviously, that's flipped. Now, yes, uh, we, we know what the strength of this AM defense is. I think that this will probably be a higher scoring game than last week. I, I think AM jumps out to an early lead, and then Tennessee has success throwing the ball downfield and hit some of those big plays. But I don't think the Tennessee defense is as good as Alabama was and is going to be able to slow down AM as much. Uh, so I'm looking at like a 35 31 AM victory. I actually see this game looking a lot like the Tennessee Florida game. I think I think AM is a better version of Florida who's going to give Tennessee those same problems. I do worry about the secondary, but I think AM is going to be able to win this one because of how good they are uh, up front in the trenches. And I think that offensive line, they're not going to get exposed as much because Tennessee's not as good at, at rushing the passer as Alabama is. I think they're going to have more success in the running game, uh, which really helps them as pass blockers. Uh, and so uh, give me AM 30. Tennessee 23. I think it's going to be hard for Tennessee to do because this isn't last year's Tennessee football team. Like they are not no. capable of putting up 50 points on you by throwing the ball 60 times a game with the electric wide receivers. They have struggled passing the ball. I think AM will give them more yards than maybe Tennessee is used to. I don't think they're going to hold them to 235 yards passing through the air, uh, but I think they're going to eliminate Tennessee's ability to run the football, put Tennessee in a bunch of third and eights, third and nines. And that defensive line is going to go eat and take advantage of that. So uh, I think AM gets back uh, on the horse here, wins this football game by, you know, within one score. I think it's going to be a good football game. But to me, it's all about the start, like we talked about. Uh, getting that crowd out of it, getting that confidence back in the team, shaking off 
some of that those negative vibes from from a close loss that you feel. I'd imagine everybody in that locker room feels like they should have won that football game. And so uh, to shake that out early to get it get a lead, get some good momentum feeling there. I think that's going to be a big part. And then also you can't lose the turnover battle. If if either defense can come up with a way uh, to get one or two free possessions from the offense for the offense. That that's going to be the difference to me, and so should be another close game. More small, small, small margins. Uh, you just hope that maybe Jimbo gets a little bit more aggressive on the road, uh, with a little bit less to lose, uh, without so much spotlight uh, on the teams this week. So, uh, anything else to say about that game? You want to move on to uh, fourth down? Yeah, I mean, and another thing. Uh, obviously, you never want injuries, but Tennessee being down one of their better receivers in Brew McCoy uh, could could play a role as well. Uh, and and Tennessee's ability to attack the AM secondary, uh, but yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. Again, I'm part of me is just like be excited to be at that game and and see Nealon in person, and don't worry about the outcome of the game, just so I don't get invested. But uh, no. no, it should be a it should be a good matchup, and I, I do think AM has a good chance at winning this one. Knoxville's an underrated city. Uh, great weather, close to the Smoky Mountains. Uh, stadium's beautiful. I've never been to a game there, but I've been to the stadium to walk around. Kind of a stadium junkie. If I go, if I'm driving through cities to go somewhere else, or if I find like this summer, I went to uh, the Smoky Mountains. And so when we came back through Knoxville, I I made my fiance who has never seen a live football game in her life, despite going to Kerrville, Tyvee, and to Texas Tech uh, during really two, two really good uh, runs for both teams. Just never been to a football game. I made her walk around. Uh, the stadium and she she wasn't she didn't care it was just a big stadium too <laughs> yeah uh, but i, I, I thought it was by really it cool. on the way up to uh to richmond when i drove up that way yeah. so really excited to see how it looks on a game day yeah beautiful pretty area awesome. I mean, with the beautiful river area there. yeah beautiful area area uh i'm a sucker for the whole like take your boat to the game thing not that i have a boat but i just think it looks really cool like i think baylor stadium is the most underrated one in the state uh, because of the Brazos River right running right behind it and stuff like that. So uh, jealous of you. I think that's a, probably a top five venue in college football. And uh, already this year through week seven, you will have been to at Penn State, Kyle Field, uh, and now at Tennessee. I think you're making making the rounds there. So that's good. As somebody else on a, on a journey uh, through stadium atmospheres and stuff this year, I think you may have me beat uh, being able to leave the state. <laughs> Definitely uh, got lucky with, with my schedule so far. Yeah, it's been a good, it's been a good schedule. All right, let's uh, let's move to more fun topics. I feel like that was a very down forty-five minutes of, of <laughs> podcasting about A and M. A and still four and two. Uh, I mean, honestly, Alabama looks like a team that's going to lose at least one conference game, maybe even two. Uh, so plenty to play for if you're Texas A and M. You can go nine and three or ten and two. This is a fantastic year. And and as you mentioned, I, every game left is winnable. Will they win every single one of them? Probably not, uh, just odds wise and how these things go. Uh, but there's not a game left on the schedule where you're like, A and M's got no chance there, right? And so uh, I think that's the good news for for not only the team. Uh, but the fan base, again, you get to nine and three, 10 and two, go to a good bowl game. That's a good year considering you lost your quarterback. The offensive line is struggling and the secondary is what it is. And so uh, to me, that feels like a success if they can get there. We'll see if they can because they have um, some really tough road games left to go. Let's have some fun in fourth down in the Ask J segment of the show. Uh, we're going to start off with my guy, Jamie Plunkett. Uh, really good TCU writer. Follow everything that he does there. He does the TCU podcast uh, here on the Republic of Football. 
Um, he asked, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life and it had to be from the state fair, what would it be? Oh, man. Uh, well, I'm probably not going to live that long because none of the food at the <laughs> right. fair is healthy. Uh, this is probably going to be a vanilla answer, but I'd probably go with the the corn dog. Of course. That's uh, and, and here's the thing. Nobody like said what kind of condiments I can put on it. So like I might get a little bit wild with, with some of the things that I put on the corn dog as my meal, right? You know, maybe go a little like queso on occasion uh, to mix it up. Uh, I w- I would get creative with it, but the, it's the Fletcher's corn dog for sure. Yeah, you need something that you can eat multiple times a day. You need something with some protein, right? Because like on the surface, I would say like a fried Snickers is probably my favorite thing at the fair, just in terms of just bite for bite. It's hard to beat the fried Snickers, fried Oreos something sweet. I'm of the belief this is a pro tip for people going to the state fair. Eat the sweet stuff early because that meaty kind of heavy stuff can really make you maybe have to go to the bathroom and then the cotton bowl. Those facilities are awful. So, so hang, hang on with the sweet stuff early on and then, and then save it, you know, before you're going to leave to go with like the fried brisket sandwiches and the different stuff that they have there. But it feels like it has to be the corn dog. Um, it's the most tolerable. You can eat it multiple times. It gives you some protein. You can eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Believe me, I've eaten a corn dog at the state fair at 8 a.m. before. Um, and so it can be a breakfast food. As you mentioned, you can put queso on it. You can go ketchup sometimes, even though I think that's blasphemous. If you had to eat it every single day, you could occasionally go, go, uh, go ketchup on it. All the different types of mustards. You can make it 18 different meals. If you go a different mustard every single time, so that does feel, put it on a salad. Why not? Yeah, I don't know if that's use, allowed. I didn't know use if you were the allowed cornbread to, to add. make it into like uh, croutons, and then like you have the hot dog as the meat. Uh, I mean, it wasn't excluded ex- yeah. like explicitly. Yeah. So again, we I'm, have I'm had a few of these. With it. <laughs> we have had a few of these questions where I have pinned myself into the question too much, where you have allowed yourself freedom, and I think it just illustrates how literal I am. I have a very hard time uh, with figurative stuff, with like trying to get out and out of the box. I am. I am super literal. There may be a, a test I need to take uh, to, to tell me how my brain works, but I, I have a hard time thinking outside of the box with questions. And so I hemmed myself in to only being able to eat this one singular item for the rest of my life. And the, and the problem with thinking outside of the box too, is sometimes I give myself too many options and then like sure. uh, it's paralysis by analysis. Uh, 100%. So th- there's, uh, there's pros and cons to both. That's why we work so well together. I think there you go. There you go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it just feels like the corny dog has to be has to be a part of it. Uh, have you ever? When's the last time you were at the fair? Man, it's been a long time. Uh, it was probably pre-COVID for me. Mm. Yeah, some of the things that they put out there, you're just like, who came up with this? And this has to be a shtick. Like this is like the fried way. fireball shot, <laughs> right? Like what is that? Absolutely not. Uh, they had like fried Vietnamese coffee that my friend Danny Davis at the Statesman tried. And he was like, it wasn't that bad. It's like, what was it? Was it that good? Like, what are we doing yeah. here? Like, um, would, I, would I do it again? If not? No, no. it's just uh, it's just a bit, really. A lot of those foods are just a bit. Uh, I am a this is vanilla. But I every time I go, I eat a couple corn dogs on the way in, a fried Snickers on the way out. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Stupid. That's how yeah. I try to try to do it uh, from K Mays on Twitter. You're hosting an away game watch party at your house. What does the food and drink spread look like? Okay. So I, I look at this and I'm like, I, I like to theme my food when I can. Uh, 
So like depending on the opponent, like if I was playing, let's say it's South Carolina on the road to South Carolina, I'm going to do like some fried chicken uh, because obviously South Carolina, the Gamecocks, uh, like if we have a game against Florida on the road, I would probably do some kind of uh, fried gator. Uh, LSU is obviously like Cajun food, so I'm going to go that route. Uh, but let's say that, for example, in this hypothetical scenario, I can't make it to Austin the first time that A&M plays at Texas. Uh, I'm obviously going to go with a barbecue feast. Uh, but you got to Austin's the capital of barbecue because Austin's capital of barbecue and also because Bebo. I just uh, wanted to get you on record saying Austin was the capital of barbecue. It, it is. It is. Thank you. I mean, Thank I don't you. think anybody can defeat like they'll try. You can say that historically Lockhart, but I, I just don't think that there's a better barbecue town than Austin. That's correct. Uh, but so if anybody from Kansas City gets in my mentions, you're blocked. <laughs> Kansas City to North Carolina or Memphis, any of those places. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're great, but uh, we're just better. Right. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to have like for an appetizer, maybe some like barbecue, uh, you know, smoke sessions in in Roy City does brisket jalapeno popper egg rolls. So I'll put some of those on as as an appetizer. Uh maybe some queso, right? Some some brisket queso to get going. Uh obviously you're gonna have the Texas Trinity, you're gonna have your brisket, your ribs, your sausage. Uh as a dessert. There are plenty of options in the world of barbecue for dessert, but I think the number one go to banana pudding. Mm-hmm. God, I have banana pudding in that spread. Uh, for drinks, I mean, you're going to have your classic barbecue uh, refreshments. Some of that's going to be beer, but you're also going to have Big Red because Big Red goes with barbecue really well. Topo Chico, I like a good Topo Chico with barbecue. And that's going to be my spread. Uh, sides, obviously, got to have good sides. Uh, I think I'm going to go with like a green bean casserole, like Bari Barbecue does, which is one of my favorite. Uh, Truth Barbecue here in Houston, they do a, a tater tot casserole that I really like. Uh, probably going to have that as an option. You have to have some kind of fresh like side. That way you're not just overloading on carbs and meat. Uh, Leroy and Lewis in Austin does a kale Caesar salad that I really like. It's like a more refreshing option. And then I'll also probably do like a tomato cucumber salad. So you get two of the heavies and then two of the lights to really get the... Uh, the other thing too is like you can do those salads in bulk, so it's kind of easy. That's the other thing you have to think of here is if you're hosting a watch party, you're gonna have to feed a lot of people, and those are kind of easier to go with as far as bulk options go. I'm gonna keep it simple. Nobody asked me, but I like to give my <laughs> answers anyway in the Ask Jay segment. If I'm hosting, I mean, I hosted the Super Bowl in uh, January uh, or February, whenever that was, at my house uh, when I got to move back to Austin, which was really nice. Uh, that was like a great, great moment for me. I got my brother over there, had a couple of friends, and was like, "Yes, I am." I am officially back in Austin after my one-year bid uh, up in DFW. I'm easy, though, because I don't like to cook, and I don't like to spend a lot of money. I just do pizza, chicken wings, Dr. Pepper, beer, right? That that feels – get a dip of some kind, like a buffalo chicken ranch kind of dip for some chips or whatever like that uh, to snack on because the pizza and the chicken wings serves as appetizers, meal, sides. Like, they can do whatever. You can eat them three hours after you first got them. Uh, they, They work perfectly. It feels like crowd pleasers as well. Sometimes people come over and maybe they don't like a bunch of barbecue or they don't want, um, you know, whatever that they don't want. Uh, I get my, my fiance is a vegetarian. So some of that, some of this answer is because of that. 
Uh, but pizza just feels like a crowd pleaser uh, that lasts for a long time. And you can eat it at the beginning of the game, at halftime, at the end of the game and feel fine about it. Yeah, that does bring up another good point is uh, uh, you actually kind of stopped by our tailgate for a little bit. My buddy Nick was kind of chefing up the quesadillas and those were uh, those were delicious, man. Pretty good. Really good. So you were right I- about uh, the press box food not being as good. Uh, I had uh, chicken <laughs> strips and uh, a salad up, up top. I'm glad we got you a little snack there. Uh, I mean, dude, he like prepped the meat ahead of time and then had it ready to go so that we could make those quesadillas. And it, we were kind of making fun of him for like the amount of work he put into it, but <laughs> it turned out pretty good. So shout out to Nick for that. I added a question here based on being at your tailgate for a little while. There was an Australian there, an Australian gentleman there, which had me in stitches. That guy was that guy was uh, <laughs> Josh, hilarious. Josh is an incredible human being, and yeah, he he let me know afterwards that A and M was the best game day atmosphere of any sport that he's ever been to. So, well, that's that was what I wanted to ask you. He seemed to have a great time. He, he you told me he played rugby. He's a rugby guy uh, from Australia, so obviously college football kind of a new thing to him. This was his first time ever being on a college football game you spoiled him because like now how can he go to another one he's going to compare (laughs) it to that one the rest of the time and it's not going to be the same um i wanted to ask you if it was flipped and you were going to another country to an experience a first time sporting event uh what would you want it to be where do you want to go what do you want to see mike i have a feeling that we have the same answer on this uh i would go to a premier league I would 100% go, and me being a Tottenham guy, I would go to North London, watch Tottenham play. If I have my ideal ideal event, it's the North London Derby at Tottenham. Sure. Sure. Against Arsenal. I think it's a a no-brainer. There's a few other events that I would like to go to, uh, but that's definitely the top of my list. Uh, I would also, I would say, I want to go to uh, that, like, sport in italy that's like half ball sport half mixed martial arts where they just yes. kind of like fight each other the street it's calcio something i don't know exactly what it is i'm sure somebody will correct us but that is a number two as far as event i would love to go to uh internationally yeah i wrote down uh i'd love to go see an english premier league game for me the the ideal one would be uh, manchester united at liverpool would be would be my ideal uh situation there to see an epl game i also need to go see fulham if i only get to london uh because they play at craven cottage uh, i'd imagine there's some kind of relation there going back however many centuries back or whatever so i'd love to go see a game at craven cottage the other ones i wrote down and i think you'll appreciate the, this i'd love to go see a cricket game in india yeah. Those people freaking love cricket. And that I guess to me that seemed more in line of like I don't really know what's going on here and I can just immerse myself in this this uh, experience that I don't know a ton about. I think that would be really cool. And then the last one I wrote down is an MMA match in Brazil. Uh yeah. going to like a big UFC fight or even like a jiu-jitsu tournament in Brazil would be uh, different than it is going to one in Vegas or in Houston, which are my other two experiences doing that. Yeah, one of my favorite all-time sporting moments is Jose Aldo knocking out Chad Mendez and then it's in Brazil and he sprints into the crowd and they just like carry him on their shoulders back yeah. to the cage and it's just an incredible moment uh the Brazilian MMA fans are insane uh yes. and and it would be a lot of fun to watch a fight there I'd love to go see a soccer game in Argentina as well like against like the Boca Juniors or something like that but I don't know if I'd be safe 
You know what I mean? Like that, that's kind of part of it as well. When it comes to some of these deals is like, you see some of those stories, like my, I have an uncle who's married to a a woman from El Salvador and uh, she actually came over here because of the El Salvador Honduras war, like, you know, 30, 40 years ago. However, I'm not a historian. However long ago that was that shit started over a soccer game. Like that whole thing like kicked off over a soccer game. Some of his, her stories of going to soccer games early in her life and what she saw is just like, what are we talking about here? Like machetes are involved. Like this is insane. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I would love to go see a South American soccer, like Argentina versus Brazil and like, a you know, Copa America or something like that would be, would be tremendous. But uh, then you got to worry about getting out of there alive when you have the <laughs> skin color that I have. The, the trick is to just find the uh, home fans and yes. stick with them and stay deep embedded so that you don't get close right. to the visitors yeah, and, and the action that happens. A hundred percent. Maybe a sign that says like, I'm with the good guys or whatever you need to yeah. do. I mean, to be uh, fair, it's not any more dangerous than like a Los Angeles Dodgers, San Francisco Giants game, right? Well, I would never go to one of the, you know, I honestly, maybe this is like, I'm starting to get old Manny here, but like, I don't think I'd go to an NFL game again. Have you seen all the fights that oh, are happening dude. at NFL? Like, I don't need to go to jail. And I also, do, I definitely don't need to go to the hospital. Yeah. Uh, and those seem like to be the only two options, really. If you're going to an NFL game these days. Yeah, unless so you're sitting up in the suite with Taylor Swift, right? Right. Then, yeah. then I might go. <laughs> yeah, I go to a press box, but I don't know. I definitely, yeah, there's some, some stadiums where I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the temperament to walk away. Uh, yeah. So I'm either going to get my ass kicked or I'm going to go to jail for kicking somebody's ass. I don't know which one's more likely, but something's going to happen and uh, it's not going to be fun for me or my pocketbook. No, <laughs> either way you you lose. Yeah. Either way you're losing. So, all righty, Jay, uh, what, when are you, uh, what's the plan for, for dry? Are you driving to, yeah. to Maxville? So uh, actually the whole Arnold clan is making a trip. So nice. after Thursday night work. I'm going to drive up to DFW uh, to my folks in Rockwall, and then we'll leave from Rockwall on Friday morning, uh, drive to Knoxville. Uh, we got a hotel about 20 minutes from the stadium, uh, which, I mean, uh, you'd love to be closer, but honestly, you're just happy to get there uh, on, a, on a big game day weekend. Uh, and then we'll drive back Sunday morning. So it'll be a, it'll be a whirlwind trip, but I'm excited to see Knoxville. My, I am uh, 38 years old, uh, going in on 39 in about six months. My dad still doesn't let me drive anywhere. Uh, we went to Yellowstone like three years ago, and I figured now that I'm over 35 years old at that moment, I would drive some. He drove the whole way. We landed in Salt Lake City. We went to Grand Tetons. We went up to Yellowstone. We ended up leaving from Bozeman. I didn't sit in the pa- in the driver's seat one time. Uh, How does your dad kind of handle uh, road tripping with Jay? Yeah, if if we're together, he is exclusively the driver. He does not let me drive anywhere, which I get. Uh, but I'm I'm gonna be kind of thankful for this one because I have a feeling that uh, Tennessee is gonna get the better of me at some point. So <laughs> I, I'm not gonna complain about it too much. Yeah, unfortunately, my dad will drive even if he's partaking. If he has partaken, you know, he's a he's a country dude from Bertram, Texas, or whatever. Some of those laws, I don't think he thinks. Uh, matters to him and so uh, i've just gotten used to it over over the years but i thought it was funny because he's just i'm the same way i don't let anybody else drive with me like dave wilson oh, yeah. and i from espn drove all the way to the fiesta bowl last year uh because of the southwest uh connection stuff oh, yeah. around christmas or whatever <laughs> and i drove the whole way there too because like i'm the same way where i'm not i don't like sitting in the driver or in the passenger seat i like the i think it's a control thing uh but yeah You'll be able to sleep uh, halfway home, hopefully, if if Tennessee goes the way you think it's going to go. That's the plan. Uh, the hard part's going to be once we get back to Rockwall, then I have to drive four hours back to Houston. Uh, 
hopefully I will be rested up enough because I got to make sure that uh, my fiance gets to work on time on Monday. <laughs> there you go. That is the important part. That is that is the important part. All right, Jay. Uh, tough week last week against Alabama in that 26 to 20 loss. I think we covered it pretty well there. Pretty fairly as well, I, I think. You know, obviously you talked about the bad. Uh, Tennessee coming up, though, you know, a chance to kind of right those wrongs and, and get back into the win column, kind of rewrite this season that still a ton to play for, right? Yeah, like not, I mean, you have a chance at a ranked top 25 away win. Yeah. Uh, that, that could still be huge for this program. No doubt. And with the way that Alabama's looked uh, vulnerable and the way the SEC looks, who knows how this how this goes, right, moving forward. And so if you're A&M, you just got to keep winning, get to that 9 or, or, or 10 uh, win season rank and then you know i feel like it's not the perfect year but a successful year so a lot still to play for a lot to be excited about the sky isn't completely falling as of now we'll check in next week maybe <laughs> maybe by the time we record next week it'll be a little bit different tenure but if, if a&m comes about and beats tennessee on the road i, I feel like this season is still still on track yeah absolutely uh and again like i think we went into the season thinking that the Alabama game was going to be a loss obviously hopes were raised at some point uh, but you know, you still have a lot to play for. And, uh, like you said, I mean, Alabama could easily end up with two conference losses. All of a sudden a runs the table and they find themselves in Atlanta. So, no doubt. uh, definitely a lot to play for. Yes, sir. All right. We will, uh, be back next week for Jay Arnold from Mike Craven, Republic of football and Dave Campbell's Texas football. Please rate, subscribe, tell a friend, all of that good stuff. And we will talk to you next week.